Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. After last week's wanderings, we're back into the beer thing. When we last left Andreas Kernmeyer, author of Historic German and Austrian Beers for the Home Brewer, well, he was just about to tell us all about Bavarian beer, aka the German beer we know and love, versus the magical lost world of northern German beer. This time, no fooling, it's all about schooling. We're going deep, and we're starting right after these messages from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at brewerspublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we uh, just dive into one of these comparisons? You know, uh, one of these sets of styles that people aren't necessarily going to th- uh, think about. What what I what I chose what we could discuss is a bit of the history of Bavarian brown beers versus the history of Northern German brown beers. Um, so what what is brown beer anyway? It's it's basically any beer made from from killed malt, and that used to be the historic distinction there. There used to be brown beer and and white beer. It was it was basically because of primitive kilning technology, any kiln malt would turn out more on the, on the dark side. Whereas if you wanted to have pale malts, um, you had to uh, dry them just with, with air, um, which took a lot longer, didn't dry it so well. The, the malt could get moldy quite easily. It was, it was a more complicated and sophisticated process than just kilning it at a low temperature. Distinction of brown beer and white beer, it's really just the color. I'm saying that because when you hear white beer, people always make, or not always, but often make the association with wheat beer because Bavarian wheat beers are, in German, they're, they're Weizenbier, 
but they're also base beers. So they're, they're wheat beers, but they're also white beers. But that's pretty much just a coincidence. So there, there is there is no direct association. As I said, killing technology was not uh, as as advanced as it is nowadays. It was mostly smoke kilns that were used well into the 19th century, where the temperature was relatively hard to control. The smoke imparted at least some 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 flavor to the malt, and so smokiness was there. It was probably generally accepted by beer drinkers, but it wasn't really something that was necessarily a good property. Unlike modern uh, smoked beers, where good flavored wood is used to, to impart like a, a, a really rich and, and good flavor, that, that was not something that was really uh, done back in the day. I, I even stumbled upon some reports that some of the malt was stored for months, uh, up to a year, so that it could just lose its smoky flavor. And it, even the, the, the wood for the killing itself was very carefully selected. It was only hardwood that was used. Any any rind on the outside was, was completely removed. Softwood was, was like completely avoided because of high tree gum content, which would basically your malt sooty, tarry. And, and if it's on your malt, then it eventually ends up in your beer and who wants to have tar in their beer. A, a comparison that I like to make, it's, it's like modern barbecue. People use really well-dried hickory or, um, or oak or, or cherry wood or something like that. And nobody in their right mind would use fir or, or spruce or something like that. Um, you just don't want that on your meat. And the same way you didn't want that on your malt. Now that we've talked about what brown beer really is, let's talk about the, the situation, what beer was like in, or beer production was like in, in the Middle Ages. So you, you had like the occasional bad harvest and food was always more important than beer. There is a, is a saying that was really, relatively common back uh, in, in these days, that wheat was for the cake, barley was for the beer, and oats were for the horses. And that distinction was quite, quite common. There were also various regulations uh, which beer could really be brewed. Well, a lot of people have heard of the, the Bavarian purity law of 1516, but that was only one out of many purity laws. And, and some of them regulated, okay, you could only use barley, you could only use malt of, of any grain. Some places even went as far as temporarily prohibiting beer brewing completely. Others said only barley or only oats if uh, the harvest was really bad. Some places said uh, if you want to brew with wheat, you have to import it. So you're not allowed to use the locally grown one because that's that's for feeding the local population. Bavaria in, in that situation did actually not have a particularly good reputation for their beer. Bavarian purity law, which nowadays is, is described as the German purity law of 1516, was never like that original law was only ever valid for, for Bavaria. So th that purity law was really there to, to limit the production of beer to, to the use of barley um, and to, to hops and to, to water. Why this was done is not really known. So the, the, the legal text doesn't say it. Um, but there were probably many factors. So um, one thing was most likely that wheat needed to needed to be used um, as a food, but also uh, brewing with wheat became a state privilege. The law basically said, okay, the, the common folk can only use barley and, and nothing else, but the the local duke in in his state-owned brewery, he's allowed to to produce beer made with wheat or only from wheat. As as for the hops. Um, it's it's not quite clear, but um, what we do know is that essentially 
hop growing in a in a um, systematic agricultural manner most likely started in Bavaria. It, it was really like the, the region that is nowadays known as the Hallertau. That's where a lot of the early hop growing really um, really was happening. And so the restrictions to use hops may have come from from economic uh, reasons to just uh, strengthen the hop farming or to weaken the merchants of these proprietary herb mixes that were used in um, like early unhopped ales. The purity law, as most people know it, was really only valid for 35 years. So this, this uh, restriction to barley, hops and water was quite quickly extended to certain additional herbs, certain additional spices. Uh, I think caraway seeds was, was uh, one of them. That's something um, that always, always uh, changed and it's, it's never exactly clear what was allowed, what was prohibited and to what extent these laws were enforced. Bavarian beer really was bad. One very clear indicator for that is the local rulers, they imported beers from northern German cities. And one of them is the city of Einbeck, or um, Einpöck, as it was called in, in, in old writings. That was a, a beer that was really popular, became really popular at the Duke's court in, in Munich. They got some, some brewers from, from Einbeck and uh, basically brought them to Munich and said, yeah, brew your beer for us um, and improve the local beer brewing. And the, this, this local style from, from Einbeck is what later became the, the Bockbier, so the, the name Einpöck kind of transformed literally over centuries to Bock, and that just became the Bock beer. There were uh, very few specific techniques that distinguished Bavarian brewing, apparently already from uh, quite an early age, um, from how brewing was done in the rest of, of Germany. Some of these techniques we nowadays know as uh, triple decoction mashing. That, that was something that was always described as very distinctively Bavarian, and it wasn't really practiced anywhere else. There was also a simple form of sparging, um, not as uh, sophisticated as it, as it is done nowadays with fly sparging, and you always have drips of water continuously going on, on your mash to really get uh, like the last bits of sugar um, out of it. But it, it, was, it was still something where uh, brewers would pour hot water over to, to maximize the extraction. And the third important, specifically Bavarian thing is, is cold bottom fermentation. For whatever reason, I, I, I couldn't find anything specific about why this happened. Uh, Bavarians decided to um, ferment their beer relatively cold. They would dig caves into uh, local mountains quite deep um, and put their beer there. They would add ice uh, to to keep the temperature uh, quite cool, and they would very very slowly ferment their beer. And after fermentation, they would mature it for several months. Um, and it was uh, also usually like that. Brewing was really only done um, from September, I, th I think about around mid September until I think early April. The rest of the year um, during the summer you couldn't brew. So you, you had to produce a lot of beer during the winter, which then in turn had a lot of time to, to ferment and to mature just to develop its, its very uh, specific character. This, this, this style didn't generally become 
popular until the, the 19th century, really. Before that, it was, it was purely a Bavarian thing. And apparently parts of Bohemia as well, it, it didn't even spread to Austria, um, until I think the 18th century or so. 18th century was the, the first time when, when bottom fermentation in Austria was discussed. Bavaria had like a, a strong influence, at least culturally, um, on, on Austria in, in that regard. The decoction mashing, it doesn't really make sense if you, if you think about it. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work, a lot of manual work. It uses huge amounts of fuel. It's not rational, uh, to brew beer like that, but that logic wasn't important. It was just the, the local tradition of how Bavarian beer was brewed. And the brewing was really a, a true craft. It was, it was something where you were taught how to do it, but there was no explanation why you were doing it. And it was just experience and, and experimentation and whatever worked is what people kept and how they kept doing it. Um, but there was no systematic, uh, approach to, 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 to really looking into why exactly, you know, these temperatures or this ratio between, uh, hot and cold water or this particular technique of, um, stirring your mash. Um, I mean, these, these things in, in some of the books are very specifically, uh, discussed how you need to stir your, your mash. And it's, it's really something that was just, you know, carried over from, from, one brewer to the other without knowing why they were doing it. And there was, there was even like a complaint from, from these, these early 19th century beer scientists that a lot of brewers, they're only doing things as they were taught and um, they cannot explain why they're doing it. They, and they just, you know, keep their, the, the, the same pattern of work. Um, some of these, these old techniques even contradicted what scientifically inclined uh, uh, brewers of that time had found out what actually worked better. When I mentioned uh, uh, triple decoction mashing, it's it was it was actually not even a technique that was that was used all over Bavaria. So there, there were even more um, obscure uh, techniques. Um, one of them is the so-called Satzbrauen. I I couldn't really explain it um, in in a way where it made sense. It's it's essentially uh, mashing in uh, your your malt. Sometimes the malt was very finely ground and then drawing off wort. So it, it was even at relatively cold temperatures. Um, it, it was mashing in and, uh, and then in pretty much immediate loitering. And then hot water would be added to the, to, to the mash. And then it was, it was uh, kept like that and more wort was drawn off. And then the, the cold wort, which was the uh, cold wort was called the Satz. That was was mixed with the warmer one and then poured on top of of the mash um, and then it, it was it was kind of recirculated um, and I think that was done up to two times and I I never really to be to be honest I never really understood how that could properly convert all your starch into sugar but um, it, w- it was a common technique in some parts of Bavaria really local to to, to some cities and, and very very typical. There were other places like Bamberg. They were essentially doing um, uh, a single step infusion mesh, or some of them would would do a single decoction mesh. Basically, what you would say nowadays, have it at, at one temperature and then just to to bring the whole mesh up to 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 mesh out temperature, um, like take a very 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 liquid part of the whole mesh and 
briefly boil that and, and, and uh, put it back into the main mesh. Entirely different uh, technique. At the same time, it was also uh, described as thing that made Bamberg beer so unique that it, that it tasted so much finer because it was so much gentler process and um, how it treated the, the mold by just doing an infusion mesh instead of like vigorously boiling parts of the mesh. Bamberg also didn't do the sparging. Instead, they did a second mesh and produced a, a small beer, which was fermented beside the, beside the stronger beer. And some of the places where it was served, they would even mix the small beer with the, with the higher strength beer and serve that. And, and another thing that is probably worth mentioning, the hopping rates um, of, of these Bavarian beers were relatively high or a, a bit higher than what you would, than what you would have nowadays. So we're, we're talking about dark lager beers at 40 to 50 IBUs, um, which may seem um, quite strong or quite, quite bitter. But then on the other hand, the beer was matured at cold temperatures for half a year and it produced a clean tasting beer with uh, much of the, the, the hot bitterness probably very much mellowed out. And it, it was a, it was a beer that was fit for export and that eventually made it quite popular because it would you could ship it around um across germany and people would have a, a really clean tasting beer because of the low temperatures there was basically no chance for for, for uh, any bacteria to infect it the yeast would would uh, just very slowly like produce very um very mellow flavors that's the bavarian side of the fence and I mean, some of that, some of that tradition kind of hangs on, even though, you know, it's now been sort of uniformed. Now, what happened in Northern Germany? Then Northern Germany, um, was, was quite different. So there, there were literally hundreds of local beer styles. Some of them had, uh, really colorful names. Others were just identified by where they were from. The knowledge for, um, some of these local beer styles, uh, was preserved, but really only for the popular styles and some of which are in in the book. You can generally classify the, these these uh, northern German brown beers into into a few subgroups. Um, what, one of them was was really the, the the group of the nutritious beer beers with uh, an extremely high original gravity and a very low attenuation. You could describe it as a low alcohol malt extract, and it's quite literally liquid bread. It's it's like a very thick probably almost syrupy liquid with with small amounts of alcohol but you wouldn't have it as a refreshment you would um you would have it as as nutrition then a lot of the beers were running beers so more highly attenuated lower original gravity and just meant for regular consumptions and then as a kind of variation of that there were bitter beers highly attenuated with a relatively large amount of hops original gravity of roughly beers like we would have them nowadays because of the, the high hopping rates the beer would keep a lot longer and the beers were suitable for export even when they were kept just at warm temperatures there was always a, a rather great competition with with uh, white beers in in the north of germany white beers were really popular they they were quite often sour they were refreshing some historic records describe these these sour beers with with white wine and like the, the tartness of white wine quite quite often there there like there, there was no local law that limited ingredients and there were so many different local styles people used all kinds of herbs and spices 
and to a certain extent fruit um, in, in these beers. The, the, the use of these ingredients was also absolutely uncontroversial. So nowadays in, in modern Germany with, with the uh, legal restrictions, you're really, you can really only use malt and you can, well, you can use sugar to a certain amount in top fermented beers. Using, using herbs or spices is, is an absolute no-no. Uh, back in the day, nobody cared about it. As long as it produced a good beer, um, it, was, it was perfectly fine. The common techniques in, in the north of Germany were much simpler than, than in Bavaria. So infusion mashing um, was, was really common. It was quite, quite often it started with a, with a very thick, essentially cold mash, and then boiling water would be added to increase the temperature, um, and then just a single rest, and then uh, loitering and possibly sparging. Sometimes they um, also made multiple mashes to produce beers of, of different uh, strengths. If, if you've ever heard of um, the, the English technique of party guiding, um, it's, it's kind of like that, but it's, it, it was a lot less sophisticated. It was basically multiple meshes were, were done and you would produce words of different strengths. And uh, the last one was mostly water, um, but would still be fermented and sold for extremely cheap. Um, but there was no blending to produce very specific uh, strengths. It was just the different runnings and they would be uh, fermented separately. Cold fermentation was was pretty much unknown, nor could you practically do it. You don't have really that, that many mountains and there was no modern cooling technique. So it was just something that, that never caught on in, in the north of Germany. The, the beers were really, really often truly local. So it, it was really just brewed for your village, just maybe just your, your block of houses. You, you can see that quite well in, in the, in the um, records of breweries that were around, for example, in Berlin. So I, I think at, uh, at the height, there were at least 200 breweries in Berlin. And Berlin at that time was, was a lot smaller. So um, every brewery probably just delivered around the, a, a few hundred meters. So it, it, was, it was truly, truly local beer. And any relevant amount of, of export is really only documented for, for a few styles, three of which um, I've, I've got in the book. So, for example, Merseburger beer, Mannheimer Braun beer, Braunschweiger Mumme was, was apparently really widely shipped around, um, as was Danziger Jopen beer, which is, is something that I unfortunately couldn't put in the, in the book because there are really no specific records how it was brewed. Um, the only thing that is known is that it was spontaneously fermented and Let's just say the descriptions don't really sound pleasant, meaning that the beer essentially got moldy and uh, it, w it was still somehow good and uh, drinkable, but you really wouldn't want to try that. Just make sure that you have a thick mustache or a straw before you dig into it. I mean, it sounds like lis listening to the differences here between Bavaria and northern Germany that and the Bavarian traditions that you talked about are the ones that we kind of think are, are much closer to the ones that we think about for modern German brewing practices. And it seems like the northern German brewing practices were almost sort of, I want to say, a mix between the English tradition and the Belgian tradition, right? You know, that sort of laissez-faire attitude towards ingredients and spices is very Belgian, but then you've got the single infusion mashes and that sort of semi party guile idea that's very very English. So that's kind of interesting to see. There, there's there's certainly uh, um, like a, a close influence, most likely. Uh, I mean, in in the context of uh, of, of Belgium, just the, the proximity. You know, it's it's not far across the border, and in in when 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 you look at England, some northern German cities 
um, were, were big in the trade all around the Northern Sea, the, the Baltic Sea. So it, it, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there was quite a bit of influence. I mean, there, there, there's always been influence in, in that area. For example, um, hops were introduced to England only through through the Dutch. Like the, the British started using hops much, much later than the Germans. Um, so there, there always must have been some sort of cult, beer cultural exchange. Well, beer is culture, so therefore it must be exchanged. Yeah. Now we have these Northern German beer styles, but can you quickly tell us like what happened to them? Why did they become forgotten? It, it was essentially a, a hype thing, you can say. So in, in the second half of the 19th century, um, Bavarian beer styles and Bohemian beer um, just became super popular and people realized oh, they're, they're so clean tasting and really nice and refreshing. These beers would be uh, exported. They would be brewed locally. They, they were really a, a huge hit. Um, but by that time, the, the quality of Bavarian beer had also improved quite a bit. Bavarian brewers learned to use thermometers, which, I mean, nowadays uh, seems seems quite obvious, but uh, back in the day, um, all that counted with, with decoction meshing is measuring your, your volumes right. And when you get the ratio of hot and cold right, you would always hit the right temperatures. But with a thermo- thermometer, you know, you could verify your work. Same with hydrometers. Um, that, that's something that was really only introduced to, to uh, Bavaria in the, I think, 1830s, 1840s. And be- before that, nobody had even bothered to look at specific gravity or, or any, any kind of extract efficiency. What also helped a lot is the introduction of smoke-free English-style kilns. So those were already introduced in the in the 1820s. The production of paler malts really only started in the in the 1830s, 1840s. So there, there, there were two guys, um, Gabriel Siedelmeier, um, which was the then son of the Spaten Brewery from Munich, and uh, uh, Anton uh, Dreher, which was the then son of the owner of the Schwechater um, Brauerei in, in Vienna. They, by pure chance, had met through an apprenticeship in in another brewery in Vienna, and so they they did a trip to to to, to England and Scotland, and uh, they learned about hydrometers. They learned about how to properly use an English style kiln to to produce pale malt that was was kilns, um, and they brought that back, and they they just used these techniques to to just improve the quality of, of their beer. Those those were factors that made Bavarian beer, Bavarian beer styles, um, just a, a, a quality export product. With, with just this huge leap in, in technology, you had all these local breweries that probably had their equipment for, for probably centuries, and they, they had never modernized any of it. And they couldn't really afford to modernize. You know, their, their sales were going down because of all the, all the hip lager beer. And and that, that that was really the the, the end of it. Um, and it's it's very noticeable with with northern German breweries. A lot of the breweries that um, are around nowadays that um, are lager breweries have been started as specifically as lager breweries. And a lot of them just within the hundred last hundred and fifty years. So there there was like a really profound change in that. If you wanna if you wanna go even further, like this 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 whole uh, hype of, of, of lager brewing. Um, it's something that, that German migrants that, that went to the yes, they, they, they took that over and they, I mean, Wisconsin is a, is a prime example. Uh, lot, lots of German immigrants, they went there and they, they knew about lager brewing. 
they started new companies, they, they, uh, new businesses. So they had the capital and they, they knew about the, the, the qualities of lager beer. They, they just, I would say they, they, they hit the right spot. They made beer into this, this huge industry as it is nowadays in the U.S. I mean, obviously we, we see the spread now, but I mean, does anything remain of the, the Northern German beer tradition? I mean, we have the like mod- the modern recitation of, of Goza in a way, but but I mean, I think that was more driven by other people. The the, the last remaining bits, I, I would say, are, are really yeah, Berliner Weisse, which was almost extinct. Goza that was functionally ex- extinct uh, for for some time, and and and, and that that's about it. Um, there's you you could say probably Düsseldorfer Altbier that's kind of uh, coming from the from the tradition of top fermented bitter beers um and it's it's sometimes described as the the rhinish bitter beers coming from like rhineland kolsch kolsch would be another example but kolsch has i would say changed too much in the in the last hundred hundred years and kind of tried to be like pale pale lagers um but but that's really it every everything else is is lager brewing everywhere Yes, it, well, and but it sounds like now some of these styles are being resurrected, or at least ideas are being resurrected, so that we can get more diversity in the in beer, uh, both in Germany and just like what we did here in the U.S. Can we can we talk uh, uh, quickly through uh, an example of one of these uh, Northern German brown beers? Uh, yes, yeah. So um, the the uh, example that I, that I chose is Mannheimer Brown Beer. So Mannheim is actually a, a city um, in the southwest of Germany, but it's it's a beer style. Um, that became really well known all over Germany, and part of that is that a, a lot of people that used to live in Mannheim uh, migrated to other parts of Germany because I think at the end of the 17th century the the city was was burned down in one of the one of the local wars of succession, and so the the beer style just became became popular. The color in historic recipes is described as dark golden to kind of pale brown, and it was originally brewed with. What the recipe say is brown and amber malt. The issue there is um, we don't exactly know how these malts were, were made, um, but we can assume okay they they still must have been diastatic malts. The the closest equivalence that are that are chose in in that recipe um, is is Munich malt as a as a diastatic brown malt and an amber malt. Um, I chose Vienna malt because it it produces a dark golden to to, to amber wort. And so that should roughly match. It is a quite highly hopped uh, beer, so you you end up with with roughly sixty IBUs. What what makes this beer uh, quite different from from like modern German beer is that was it was additionally flavored, in particular with with juniper berries and ginger, which is actually nothing you would normally expect in in, in German beer. But I, I, I suppose it, it must have introduced some some quite interesting flavors. It sounds tasty to me. Quite quite unusual, but I I totally love to try a beer like that. The brewing actually started with preparing a juniper extract. So the the recipe says you need to crush your um your uh, juniper berries. You soak them in just water. It doesn't say what specific temperature, so I just assume cold water. You soak it in in water for twenty four hours, and then you just remove the berries. You do that preparation a day before, and then. For, for for the actual brew day, um, it's it's actually a, a quite quite a simple process. The mash in was at a temperature of fifty degrees Celsius or one hundred and twenty two Fahrenheit, and the malt would simply be or sorry the mash 
would simply be rested for roughly 30 minutes. And then boiling water was added um, in just the right ratio um, that it would bring the, the mesh to about 68 degrees Celsius, which is um, roughly 154, 155 Fahrenheit. And then it was just rested. I don't think the original recipe set a specific time. So in my uh, in, in my recipe, I'm, I just said until it's fully converted. So you could assume, you know, an hour or so and that it should all be um, fully, all, all the starch should be fully converted to sugars. And after that, do the loitering. Here's, here's one uh, specific thing about this recipe as well. Um, it says to uh, draw off like one, one liter of wort um, and to set it aside and to boil the hops in this just one liter of, of wort for 15 minutes. In the meanwhile, while, while this is boiling, just continue the loitering and the sparging, collect your, your wort. In my recipe, it's, it's about 25 liters. After if you've boiled the, the hops with, with the wort for 15 minutes, you can mix that wort to the, to, to the rest of what you've collected and boil this whole mix for, for 90 minutes. After flame out, um, it says to add the juniper infusion um, and then to chill the wort to just 20 degrees Celsius. And that's when the chopped ginger is added. It's, it's not a, not a um, large amount. I, I suppose it adds some, some spiciness. And then some top fermenting yeast um, is added. It, the, the original recipe doesn't really say whether it's particularly uh, highly attenuating yeast or not. Um, so I simply decided to go for, for a, a normal Kölsch yeast, but I, I'd say you, you can be quite free in that. So if, if you have any, any other like English ale yeast or even a, like an American ale yeast, just go for that. Um, it will work out in the end. And, um, the, the yeast is really one of those, those big unknowns where you can really only guess how it was. Well, I mean, the good news is nobody's going to come back and tell you that you're doing it wrong. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, it will be beer, and it will be interesting and different uh, German beer, guys. Again, uh, as we said, we'll uh, put a link to the to the book on uh, the show notes, so you can go buy it on Amazon, both in physical and ebook form. And we'll also include a transcription of the recipe on the website and include that in the show notes, uh, as well as the, a link to your blog, uh, which is daftegypt.com. Well, hey, Andres, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, you know, I know that it's you know nighttime there for you, daytime here for me, and I, I would really highly encourage everybody to you know go dig in and, and remember that German beer wasn't always what we thought German beer was. Exactly. So th- thanks for ha- having me, and um, if, if I may have a, uh, a few words uh, for all the listeners, yeah, please go out through these old styles um, and resurrect them um, with with any luck. You know, we, we could have a, a a new revolution of ter- northern German-style brown beers that could become as popular as uh, Gose and Berliner Weisse has become through through the craft beer movement. So go out through this through these beers and uh, uh, make some tasty beer. No, nothing like finding new flavors by resurrecting old ones. Totally game for except for maybe the moldy one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, I, I wouldn't wanna I wouldn't wanna do that. Never. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this deep dive into the long-lasting tyranny of the short-lived Reinhatzgebot and what we lost when Northern German beers got waylaid. Now, don't forget that you can buy Andreas's book, and it's filled with all sorts of German beer history, 
including more on Bavaria and even more on the lost white and brown beers of northern Germany. So go pick up your copy at Amazon, we'll include a link in the show notes, and give some old flavors a brand new spin. Now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrewing forum out there. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of year is Habitat for Humanity, helping people have homes. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. <laughs>